couple notes of explanation. Um, as long as I've been involved with the John Bunyan Conference, and I think since the beginning when John uh, Riesinger began the conference, there's always been something of an academic flavor to it. Not exclusively that, there's, a, there's been a preaching time as well, uh, not specifically academic. But to me, that's been one of the strengths of the conference. Dr. Carson said yesterday that he's a bit frustrated with the assignment. I understand that, and I, I sympathize with that. But several people have had questions, including me, had questions about a, a new teaching that has been afoot for 15 or so years, sometimes called a new perspective. He'll describe it for you, and he'll deal with that. Several of you have asked me about it and talked about it yourselves, and I certainly didn't want to deal with it, so I'd much rather he be frustrated than, than <laughs> me be frustrated. I'm sure we're much better off that way. Um, it is something which I'm sure many of you have not come in contact with, but I know many of you have. And it's something that seems to be on the rise, and you run into it in commentaries on Romans and Galatians and different places. I'm very glad to, to have him deal with it. He says that he considers himself more a preacher than a teacher. I won't argue with that, but it seems to me it's a pretty fair toss-up. Uh, he, he's been very helpful in both. But that to explain wh why we're doing this. So this is something you will come in contact with eventually, especially those of you who do some reading. And so Dr. Carson, would you come and deal with that? The so-called new perspective on Paul is not so much a single position as an array of positions. There is a kind of trajectory of development. What I shall do in this first hour is describe it by referring to the writings in particular of three men. These three are not in perfect agreement. There's some development from the first to the second to the third, and in any case, they fight amongst themselves and so forth. Yet together, nevertheless, they are the premier exemplars of a rising new perspective which has spin-offs in literally scores and scores and scores of books and now hundreds and hundreds, perhaps thousands of articles, and it has percolated now outside a small coterie of um, intellectuals into the common marketplace of ideas. What I shall say now in this first hour then is primarily by way of description without a lot of editorial comment and then in the second hour I shall try to think through with you some of the ways back how to evaluate it. Let me say something uh, preliminary which I shall repeat in the second hour. It would be nice if every movement that arose were either straight from the throne room of God or right from the pit. Then you could either bless it or damn it and get on with life. <laughs> but the fact of the matter is that most things that come along have some modicum of truth to them or sometimes a great deal of truth to them, but they are critically wrong at some crucial point. And uh, I have to say that uh, in the case of all of these men, there are things they say that are prof 
profoundly and demonstrably right in my judgment. Moreover, one or two of them have said some things that uh, are not only right, they're prophetic, and they're extremely helpful on other fronts in current debates. Yet at the same time, on the particular uh, uh, axis that we're looking at, uh, there's some things here that are profoundly troubling. Now, if you have a black-white mentality and you can only think in those terms, you are going to be very frustrated because you're going to hear some black and you're going to hear some white and you're also going to hear a lot of gray. Um, that's the way life is, brothers and sisters. It's the way life is. Movements are like that. And it is important sometimes to, uh, to do one's very best to check things out by Scripture very carefully and um, see uh, as, as carefully as, as we can uh, what is uh, good in these developments, because there is some good, and what is plainly mistaken. The movement was kicked off by a book by E.P. Sanders in 1977. At that time, E.P. Sanders was in Canada. Uh, his earlier academic writing that had brought him some measure of uh, renown was on the synoptic problem. And on the whole, it was a pretty good piece. It was published by Cambridge University Press in the SNTSMS, Society for New Testament Studies monograph series. His main thesis there was that um, the evidence is so complex that you can't really justify very strongly any particular theory, um, which is a theory I'm fairly sympathetic to. But in 1977, he published a book called Paul and Palestinian Judaism. It was about 450 pages, two-thirds of it devoted to the literature of Second Temple Judaism, which is the way now the so-called intertestamental period is regularly referred to, and about one-third, about 150 pages devoted to Paul. His principal theme was that a great deal of um, analysis of what first century Judaism looked like uh, has been written by scholars who are so influenced by the Reformation and by a coterie of especially German Lutheran people that they are constantly magnifying the degree to which this Judaism was legalistic. Uh, for example, he argued that um, the picture that is sometimes cited in rabbinic literature, in which all of the good points are set over against all of the bad points and a kind of tilting of the scales to see whether you enter into Abraham's bosom or not, that, after all, is at the earliest 4th century AD. It's from the Babylonian Talmud. You cannot find it in the 1st century. The problem, he says, is partly that we are using much later sources and reading them back into the first century as if they represent first century ideas, a bit like trying to read our ideas back into Shakespeare. It's approximately the same period of time, and you can't do that. So he went further and argued that what does tie first century Judaism together is not really legalism at all, but what he called covenantal gnomism. By this, he means that Jews saw themselves entering the covenant by grace, but maintaining themselves in it by works. He 
says that that is characteristic of all branches of first century Judaism. And so he includes in this not only the kind of rabbinic teaching, so far as you can get at it, that is codified in Mishnah, which was, of course, codified by uh, uh, Judah the Prince, Judah Hanissi, about AD 200, and codified and developed further in later writings, but also in uh, Second Temple Judaism, apocalyptic, and in Philo, and in a slightly different way in Josephus, and uh, reflected in the Targums, the Aramaic paraphrases, and so forth. Moreover, he says, the real difference then between Paul and the Jews was not grace versus law, still less grace versus legalism. Because, he says, in the first century, the sources just don't show that the Jews were all that legalistic. In fact, he says, the real argument between Paul and the Jews is Christology. Above all, he doesn't agree with them because they're not Christians. That is, they don't follow Christ. That is what his argument is. So that as he works through the Pauline passages, he has re-readings of them that put many of them in slightly different lights from what you would normally expect. Moreover, he says that sometimes Paul does condemn Jews for things that they shouldn't be condemned for. You can't listen to a person's argument by the lips of his opponent. Would you want everything that, um, that uh, evangelicals believe to be filtered through the lips and analysis and writings of uh, Catholic opponents? And vice versa? You've got to go back to primary sources. And he says, in this connection, he, he says sometimes, quite frankly, Paul's got it wrong. He, he, he depicts the other side in a rather more negative light than the primary sources actually allow for, he says. And then, um, this means, therefore, that Paul doesn't really work from plight to solution. That is, from the problem of legalism and sin and condemnation to the solution in Christ. Rather, he has come to see from his Damascus Road experience that Jesus really is the Christ, and he really works historically from solution to plight. That is, having seen who Jesus is, he's then got to work back and figure out a theology that accommodates it all. So that historically, therefore, he argues, Paul's thought really does move from solution to plight rather than from plight to solution. In his later books, then, he works a little more on related issues. He works on Christ and the Gospels. He's turning out to be increasingly a naturalist in his approach to Christ. Uh, he, in his initial book, he had precisely six references to Josephus, in a later book, he dealt with Josephus a great deal more and so forth. But that is, in, in fact, the, the main tenor of his thought. His more recent works have been on the historical Jesus, and they have been extraordinarily reductionistic and have not too much to do with what we're talking about right now. The next figure I'll mention is James D.G. Dunn. He's now professor uh, of divinity at Durham University. He's still a member of the Tyndale Fellowship. He was just ahead of me at, uh, at Cambridge, so I've known him for 25 years or more. He comes from an evangelical background, 
and, uh, and has followed uh, C.K. Barrett in the prestigious chair at Durham. Dunn's uh, real interest, in all fairness, um, and Dunn's real interest is in reconstructing early church history. Deep down, he sees himself as a kind of um, new Harnack, uh, reconstructing all of early church history. I remember sitting down at him at a, an SNTS uh, conference a number of years ago, Studio Autumn Novi Testamenti Societas, um, Society for New Testament Studies conference um, a number of years ago. And uh, <clears throat> he asked me what I was doing, and I said I was doing something on Greek grammar. And um, he, he asked me why I was wasting my time on that. Why didn't I get into something really interesting like the reconstruction of early church history? <laughs> I, I was tempted to quote Martin Luther's dictum, he is no theologian who is not a philologian, but I restrained myself. In any case, um, uh, he is known to many of us first by his first book, which was a revision of his doctoral dissertation on baptism in the spirit. And then some of you may know him also through Christology in the Making, which is now in its second edition and is about to come out in its third. In his uh, treatment of Christology, this is relevant, believe it or not, I will get to the point in a moment. In his treatment of Christology, um, his approach is so much from below that what he argues is that there is no unambiguous affirmation of the unqualified deity of Christ until about A.D. 90 and John's Gospel. Now that means, for example, that Philippians 2, he reads uh, a little differently from just about everybody else, um, he sees here what he calls a new Adam Christology rather than in any sense uh, uh, the, the high Christology that would make Jesus equal with God. Uh, interestingly enough, here it is one of Tom Wright's essays in JTS that has been the best answer against Dunn on Philippians 2. I say that in passing. They're not all in the same camp. It's important to see that. Uh, but this, uh, this emphasis on developing Christology raises sooner or later the question, yes, but, but are you talking merely about when and how people came to recognize what was really true about Christ, or are you talking about what really was true about Christ? And on that sort of issue, he is extremely equivocal because he is writing a kind of a descriptive history and does not want to get into such confessional elements. He's very equivocal, but I'm afraid veers rather more to the former than to the latter. It is very difficult to see how he avoids some charges of naturalism that are, that are really quite painful to observe. What he's really interested in, however, by all of this, is what he has come to call, and is now a common expression in the guild, the parting of the ways. That is to say, the parting of the ways between the synagogue and the church. After all, all the first Christians were Jews. What then spins off the church as a separate institution from the synagogue? What brings about the parting of the ways? And because that is the dominant axis down which he is developing his reconstruction of early church history, you can see why both Christology and then finally questions of law and the like relate to that question. Do you see? 
So from the perspective of Christology, what he argues is that Jewish monotheism, this side of the exile, was so strong that it was simply inconceivable for the earliest, the first Jewish Christians to confess Jesus as God. That would have been, in fact, a kind of ditheism for them. They wouldn't have had the categories for it. It really took more of a thrust outward into the Hellenistic world to soften up things a little bit so that the categories were flexible enough to allow something that eventually in the course of time came to be called the Trinity. That is one of his uh, important arguments. He's wrong, but it's still an important argument. I said I wouldn't give evaluation, didn't I? <laughs> now what this means, therefore, on, in terms of our subject today is that his interest in Romans and Galatians, he has written major commentaries on both, as well as many other important books. His interest in those books is less on the historical questions that have been of interest to many of us flowing this side of the Reformation than on factors that go into the parting of the ways. And there he says that um, it is worth observing that in a book like Galatians, the, the foci for debate, right at the sharp edge, are not, at the end of the day, uh, legalism, but questions of kosher food and uh, circumcision. I wish they would go all the way and emasculate themselves. Well, sounds to me like that's dealing with circumcision. And then the food issue in chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, uh, he sees the same sort of thing again and again and again in Romans. Uh, in fact, in one uh, six-chapter section where neither of those is mentioned, he still, still sees it as part of the controlling theme. Uh, these uh, sorts of things can be grouped together under what he calls boundary markers. That is, what are the marks that identify the people of God? And for Jews before the coming of Christ, and in the early decades afterwards, the boundary markers for them societally are bound up with kosher food and with circumcision and with observance of Jewish uh, ritual and, and, and so forth. So then you can, you can, within this framework, allow for the extraordinary doctrinal diversity from uh, Philo, for example, who on many fronts is a Hellenizer. He, he really on many front, fronts belongs to the Stoic camp. Um, uh, then you can move to Josephus, who seems to call himself a Pharisee, if that's what the Greek really means, and um, then to uh, the Apocalyptists, uh, uh, writers like uh, two Barak and uh, one Enoch to some extent, and especially in the similitudes and, and so forth, or to, um, to, to the uh, historical reconstructionists, the authors of one and two Maccabees, especially perhaps also three Maccabees. And, and so forth. Now, what, what mix, mixes all of these people together into one cohesive group? It's a bit like asking, what's a Jew today? When you have Orthodox Jews and Reformed Jews and Conservative Jews and Atheist Jews and Secular Jews, when is a Jew a Jew? Is, is it just a racial category? Well, yes, it's a racial category, but it's a religion as well. Uh, how, how, how do you define religion when you've got atheistic Jews? And um, he says that uh, then as now, you're dealing at a certain level with praxis. The issue is more orthopraxy than orthodoxy. It's not so much a question of confessionalism as a certain kind of shared heritage of observation. 
so that even very secular Jews who aren't, don't keep a kosher house round about Yom Kippur will observe Yom Kippur in some fashion or another, or maybe they'll, they'll, they'll go to some Passover service at a local synagogue, even if they don't go to anything else, just the way a lot of so-called Christians might show up in church on Easter. And it's this sort of commitment to um, a certain heritage of observation that marks them out. These are the boundary markers. Thus, the difference between Paul and his Jewish opponents has less to do with legalism than with nationalism. Paul sees that the church, the, people, the locus of the people of God, is expanding beyond a merely Jewish boundary. Thus, the Jewish boundary markers have to go. So the real issues, therefore, turn on such things as food, circumcision, temple observation, that sort of thing, because these are the boundary markers that define the people of God up to that point. Now, this affects his commentaries, inevitably, on Romans and Galatians to a considerable extent. But unless you see that that is the background of his discussion, you may not pick up on what he's doing in his commentaries. Every commentary is written from a slant, including evangelical ones. They're all written from a perspective. That's inevitable. And, and it is important to understand what some of those slants are when you start reading a commentary. There are many, many parts of both his commentary on Romans and his commentary on Galatians that are frankly superb. But on the other hand, you, unless you perceive these particular slants, you will not see sometimes where they're going on these broader issues. Now we come to Tom Wright, N.T. Wright. He and I were exact contemporaries. He at Oxford, I at Cambridge, doing uh, research a quarter of a century ago. And uh, we used to get together once in a while. I, his first book, co-authored with two or three others when he was an undergraduate at Oxford, was a defense of five-point Calvinism. I thought you should know that. Uh, he disavows it now and wishes he had never written it. Um, we participated in conferences together in those early days, and I heard him give a very excellent defense of Romans 9, 5, and 6, his particular understanding, uh, which I still think is correct, although he's disavowed that too. He takes another stance today. He is a brilliant debater. He is a very able communicator. He certainly knows how to write. Um, for many years, he taught at McGill University in Montreal, which was my alma mater, only he was teaching theology and I studied chemistry and mathematics there in a former life. Uh, <coughs> you have to interpret that clause. Uh, on several fronts, he has proved a very able apologist. He has been a great boon to the people of God on many fronts. His little book, Who Was Jesus, 1992, takes on some of the most um, uh, virulent um, naturalist rereadings of who Jesus is, and he decimates them with humor and um, scholarly acuity, with authority, um, very convincing. It's a book that I have recommended to many, many, many an undergraduate um, in, in British universities getting theology in a skeptical framework. Uh, it's a lovely little piece. One of the funniest, one of the funniest demolition jobs on John Dominic Crossan 
is an article that he wrote in Theology in 1993. I remember reading it in a bookstore in Cambridge, and I just burst out laughing, standing there in the aisle reading this thing, because my own copy hadn't come yet. It's called Taking the Text with Her Pleasure, a post-postmodernist response to John Dominic Crossan. If you know anything about that sort of debate, it's uproariously funny. It's, it's, uh, it, it's terrific. He actually read it as a, as a, as a paper at uh, Society of Biblical Literature in this country. And um, in fact, I saw him the day before, he hadn't written it yet, and he stayed up most of the night writing it. He's that kind of chap, and then delivered it and brought the house down. It was so outrageously funny, even while just about everybody was trying to disagree with him, uh, he manages to slip inside their defenses, and uh, uh, he's a very able man, you must understand that. Um, a, a very important figure in Britain, um, with whom I've crossed swords once or twice myself, most recently on radio in Chicago, is A.N. Wilson. He wrote a book on Jesus and then more recently a book on Paul. And, uh, but it's Tom Wright who's responded to him in another book, 1997, What St. Paul Really Said, Was Paul of Tarsus the Real Founder of Christianity? And A.N. Wilson says yes, and of course Tom Wright says no. It's a, it's a, very, good, it's a very good book, again, to, to pick up on all kinds of important historical points. Now, I say this because here again is one of those cases where you, you don't want to, uh, to simply bless a man or damn a man. The, 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 the man is eminently useful in all kinds of ways. It's also true to say that someone who is so useful and so good on so many fronts can in some respects be more dangerous than somebody who's so far off to the left you need field glasses to see him. Um, that sort of person doesn't snooker anyone. Uh, but, but sometimes someone who is so close to us on so many fronts and who has done so much good can in fact be a little more difficult to evaluate than someone who is uh, uh, farther removed. I hesitate to say this, uh, but partly because it, it's, it's going on tape and I, I, I don't, there, there's some personal things I don't really like to go far on tape, but I, I think I will say this uh, 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 quietly. Um, <laughs> In the early 80s, John Woodbridge and I uh, put together the plan for two books on Scripture, uh, which eventually came out, Scripture and Truth, and, uh, and then uh, a couple of years later, Hermeneutics, Authority, and Canon, in which we were trying to deal with the whole question of, of Scripture in a contemporary framework, asking today's questions rather than the questions of uh, a century ago, but nevertheless from within an orthodox framework. And um, when we were putting together the plan for that, I wrote to Tom, um, and, and asked if he would, um, would like to participate in this, uh, in this uh, project. At that time, he was at McGill. And, and he had certainly, when I had known him uh, six or seven years before that, I lost contact with him except uh, Christmas greetings and the like, um, he had certainly uh, affirmed inerrancy at that point. So I wrote to him and asked if he would like to participate. And his answer at the time was, um, uh, he wished us well in our project, but he didn't want to write in any area that would queer his chances of getting an Oxbridge post. And um, that, that grieved me a great deal. I, as far as I'm concerned, you, you don't determine what you do by whether or not you get a post. You may, it may determine in part how you do it. It may determine um, the level of sophistication at which you go at it or the like. Um, but that, that, that was my first red flag. I'm afraid. I, I always worry about someone who's worried about his future. In any case, he now would no longer speak of personal election the way he did in his first volume. 
His first volume has some things in it that are wrong as well, incidentally, but that's another matter. Uh, he has now embarked, uh, in addition to some, some other works, on a five-volume opus. And in some ways, it too is another Harnack. The general title of the five-volume work is The Origins, uh, Christian Origins and the Question of God. Christian Origins and the Question of God. Volume one, about 500 pages, was The New Testament and the People of God, which is a kind of overview of the whole project. It's been out for a few years. Volume two came out last year, Jesus and the Victory of God. And there are three more volumes coming. Now, none of this uh, uh, touches Paul directly. There are some pages in the first of these two volumes that deal with Paul more directly. But then in addition, he's written another book called The Climax of the Covenant, uh, which uh, talks much more about Paul. And then in articles here and there and in private discussions, one four-page clip in Climax and a few other places, increasingly you're getting the contours of his understanding of justification and related matters in Paul. And um, now I think enough of, enough of his views are crystallizing and uh, coming out into the open that it is, um, it, it is possible to give a, a sketch. And moreover, I keep talking to him about some of these things. I had a two-hour breakfast, breakfast with him in New Orleans three or four years ago. Uh, about which I'll try to say a little more later. Much of this last book, which is what I shall briefly summarize, at least some of it I shall summarize, is simply excellent. It is simply excellent. Uh, on the historical front, right is often right. Um, he, is, he is very good at turning away the most radical criticism. His... Uh, a clip in there of, oh, I can't remember, 30 or 40 pages on the Jesus Seminar is as good as anything I've read on the Jesus Seminar. And I've been involved with the Jesus Seminar, and not personally, but in terms of confrontation. <laughs> Am I allowed to tell you a story in that respect? This has got nothing to do with anything, but, <laughs> but it's funny. <laughs> when, when the first fat volume of the Jesus Seminar came out, I had, I had done a couple of things on TV with Bob Funk, Robert W. Funk in the past. And when that book first came out, this, this is the, the Five Gospels book, you know, which, which puts the text in different colors uh, to see which bits are authoritative and so forth. Um, when that book first came out, the, the, the producers of CNN went to Ravi Zacharias and asked him if he would go head to head with Bob Funk. And Ravi suggested on that subject it might be better to get me, so they phoned me. And I said, well, I'll, I'll write. I mean, it's not the sort of thing I like to do, to be honest. But yeah, you have to do some of these things sometimes. So um, I hadn't got the book at that point. I'd seen articles on it. I went and bought it. And then I read it. And, and, and then I only had about four days. And then, then you start writing your one-liners. I was at my desk writing one-liners. You see, when you, you've got to know your medium. Um, and this is not a discursive article for New Testament studies. This is CNN. So you've you got to figure out what you're going to say, and then you figure out your one-liners. And I was, I was actually composing my one-liners. Uh, when this producer in Atlanta phoned me up again and said, I'm sorry, uh, Dr. Carson, it's all off. And I said, well, that's, that's fine by me. Why is it all off? And he said, well, Bob Funk won't go up against you. And I said, well, why not? He said, well, he, he doesn't want to. He thinks, he thinks that, that you're not very nice. And I... <laughs> I said, you mean he thinks he might lose? And he, she said, yeah, that's probably right. I said, whom does he want? I see, he said he would only go up with Bishop Spong. 
And I said, well, I promised to be very nice, but she said, listen, she, she said, I know, Spong would be a cheerleading section. And that's exactly right. So my vast contribution to the Jesus Seminar is that I kept them off the air. Because... <laughs> Because even if, even if a side, quote, loses, unquote, in that kind of debate, they still sell 10,000 more copies, you know, that's, that's the way it works. Um, I was supposed to, I was invited to go up against Spong on radio in Chicago the other day, but I had to be in Denver, so I, I, I didn't get there. We sent somebody else from the seminary. But I've composed a limerick about him, too. There once was a bishop called Spong, whose views are exceedingly strong. The literal meaning is crass and demeaning, he said, but was literally wrong. And I was just dying to use that on the radio, and I... <laughs> I'll have to wait for some other occasion. In any case, I told you it had nothing to do with anything. There really is much that is excellent in these books. Um, Moreover, he, he sets himself to ask some of the toughest questions in, in sort of scholarly debates, questions that are resolved for believers, but you have to engage a secularist somewhere. Amongst the questions he sets himself to ask, did Jesus' aims remain consistent throughout his life? Did he go to Jerusalem to die? Did he intend to found the church? Why did he die both historically and theologically? How and why did the early church begin? Why are the Gospels what they are? And on most of these issues, he comes down in due course on sides that you would be entirely happy with, one or two tweaks that I wouldn't put that way, but these are still important books in terms of, of the way they engage in contemporary studies. Nevertheless, the heart of Wright's programmatic agenda, so far as our topic is concerned, may be put like this. And here we get to the nub of the issue for, for Tom. The exile is not over when Jesus comes along. That is, he argues that in the literature of Second Temple Judaism, there's a great deal that shows that the exile wasn't over as far as they were concerned. And thus the promises of deliverance had not been fulfilled. This has, he argues, deep roots in first century Judaism. Jesus comes along then, in a sense, to end the exile, to bring in Yahweh's promises of restoration, of righteousness, of climactic fulfillment of all the promises of God. In so doing, he directs attention, Jesus does, he directs attention away from Torah and temple to himself and claims, in effect, to constitute the true Israel, the new Israel himself, and be God's agent, the very manifestation of God, a self-disclosure of God, God's agent in bringing the exile to an end. Now, that is the overwhelming um, key for Wright that determines a great deal of his exegesis of the New Testament. He applies this, for example, not, not less than to the parable of the prodigal son, Luke chapter 15. For most of us, Luke chapter 15, the parable of the prodigal son, is understood in a fairly individualistic way of those who, um, 
who uh, have a sort of smash-and-grab approach uh, to uh, material blessings and without uh, any thought for the life to come or for righteousness or integrity, want it all now and end up living like pigs. But God is the sort of God who welcomes back the repentant sinner. He argues that the point is not wayward individuals, but Israel's homecoming as a nation, the end of the exile. One of the effects, then, is that all of God's victory, after all, the title of this second book in the, in the five-volume series is Jesus and the Victory of God, all of God's victory is bound up in the coming of Jesus. This has the further effect that there is no reference whatsoever, no reference whatsoever in the Synoptic Gospels that refers to the parousia. Every single one is bound up with the triumph of Jesus either in his ministry or on the cross or in the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Now, some of you will um, be familiar with that uh, uh, history of interpretation, which argues that in the so-called um, Olivet Discourse, um, Mark 13, Matthew 24, 25, uh, Luke uh, 21, um, that, that in fact Jesus there in the first part, so for example, R.T. France, Jesus there in the first part is not talking about his parousia, but is in fact talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Now, this, this means that there are certain clever bits of exegesis you have to do. The angeloi, the angels, are not then angels at all, but messengers who go out and proclaim the gospel and, and so forth. It all gets reconfigured that way. But Tom Wright goes further Dick France had said that the first part is dealing exclusively with the fall of the temple, and the second part is dealing exclusively with the return of Christ. Most interpreters think that the two are interwoven in more complicated ways than that. Dick France divides it absolutely. Tom Wright comes along and says there's no reference whatsoever to the second advent anywhere there. Without exception, it is all referring either to the triumph of Christ on the cross vindicated by the resurrection, or to the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Jesus then does not ask for repentance quite in the ordinary sense, but in the sense of turning away from revolutionary zeal and turning to Jesus as the agent of God in bringing in the restoration. Faith becomes primarily loyalty to or trust in a leader, Jesus himself, Sinners are the notoriously wretched, and these are admitted under Jesus' gracious regime because the age of Yahweh's restoration is now at hand. Now, when this gets tied to Paul, now here there are, there, 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 we don't have a 500-page volume yet. We only have clips here and there and some personal conversations and a few pages in the book Climax and so forth. When this gets tied to Paul, it looks a bit like this. Um, although, although Tom Wright has clashed with E.P. Sanders on numerous points, uh, he, he does in large measure line up with Jimmy Dunn on the boundary markers theme. In fact, in private conversation, he insists that he was the one who suggested this approach to Jimmy Dunn, but since I wasn't there, I don't know and I won't try to mediate that one. 
He does disagree with him and contradict him uh, on, on certain elements of it, but he does see that the real issue is, who are the people of God? That becomes the question. Who are the people of God? Are the people of God the Jews in the racial or old covenant sense bound up with temple and Torah and observation and, and kosher food and circumcision, that sort of thing? Or are the people of God those who are bound up with Jesus? That becomes the question. Now within that framework, therefore, justification is, dikaiosune, is bound up with God's certainly to be observed promise, his faithful, righteous character in bringing about the salvation that comes at the end of the exile to his people. He, he will be faithful in doing that. He will accomplish all of this. He is just and righteous in doing all of this. And justification, so far as we are concerned, then becomes God's declarative act. It still is declarative for right. God's declarative act by which God declares certain people to be in the covenant. That is, certain people are declared by God to belong to this covenant community. They are declared to be in because of the triumph of Christ in bringing about the righteous fulfillment of God's restor restoration promises at the end of the exile. That's the heart of his stance. Now, I think I've just about used up my first hour, and if we go for coffee now, then uh, we can come back and start thinking our way through uh, evaluation, and that will leave plenty of time for discussion in due course. Uh, Mr. Chairman, is that an agreeable procedure? Where's Mr. Chairman? Is that all right? Yes. All right. To quote Billy Graham, may the Lord bless y'all real good.
The following question and answer period originally followed Dr. Carson's second presentation, A New Perspective Theology, tape JB98A4. Please listen to that lecture before listening to this discussion. Thank you. Now, I would love to say more about these matters and the relationship between Paul and law, but if I do not end there and leave time for questions, um, someone will have my skin. So uh, I think I'd better call it quits. I warned you that this was not going to be a sermon. It's, it was a lecture, two of them now. You've been very patient, but it's, now it's your turn to come back, and at the end we'll have time for some prayer together um, uh, on these important issues. So if you want to take the microphone and... Um, um, have your uh, discourse. All right, whatever you say. I never argue with John. I'll take the first question then, how's that? No, oh, that's the real motto here, John. <laughs> Have been Two. gambling recently, John? Pardon? Have you been gambling recently? <laughs> uh, Two questions, and depending how you answer the first one, what the second will be, uh. number one is what you are talking about and refuting, is this outright heresy, or is this possible that somebody can hold this and be a Christian and so on? And your second question? It depends on how you answer the first question. Oh, you only answer that one first. It depends a bit. I wish I could answer that one just yes or no again. It depends a bit. It depends for two or three reasons. Um, First of all, heresy is a slippery word. If heresy refers to that which is false doctrine, um, then it's heresy, in my view. But usually heresy is given a tighter definition than that. Heresy is false doctrine that damns. Mm -hmm. uh, that is to say, it is false doctrine, the seriousness of which means that a person who holds it is outside of... Um, of, of, of grace. And some things are clearly labeled that, hence Galatians 1, 8, and 9. Um, and, um, or if someone denies that, 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 that Jesus really is the Son of God in 1 John and so forth. Um, but then there's another factor that has, to be got, that has to go into that too. Clearly as Paul writes to the Galatians, he's not quite sure where they are. He knows that at some level they've been snookered by the troublers but he doesn't know when they're challenged if they'll come down on this side or that. So that in 419, for example, he says, I could wish that, uh, that, that uh, I were with you again and it's as if I'm bringing you back to, to birth all over again. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes when a person goes down one of these tracks, it doesn't mean at that point that they're necessarily outside the camp. It, it may mean that they haven't been confronted yet and give them a bit of time and we'll see how things work out. Um, when you say, is this outside the camp, too, you have to distinguish E.P. Sanders, Jimmy Dunn, and Tom Wright. In the case of E.P. Sanders, the man is pretty close to a naturalist. I don't see anything of the gospel in his writings in him, to be quite frank. In the case of Jimmy Dunn, what troubles me more than his approach to the boundary markers, although that troubles me plenty, is his approach to Christology. That is so far out, I, I, I really find it very difficult to reconcile with any sort of sense of Orthodox Christianity, and I would label it a heresy. In the case of Tom Wright, 
it's more complex. I am per persuaded it is, uh, it is dangerous, very confused, confusing, but I can still see some ways in which he could salvage it. And I don't know where he's going with the rest of his, his moves yet. So I want to be careful. Is that fair? Yeah. That's uh, on this hand and on this hand, yeah. which you're famous for. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a compromiser. You have to understand that. All right. Second question. Second question is, assuming that we, we both know people who we would disagree with on their new view of justification by faith. Now, where does this lead, which is inevitable, and where does it lead as a very strong possibility? How should we, for instance, as, as a pastor, somebody holds this view, is a knowledgeable person, and is a reader, should they be an elder? in our congregation, or would we say, no, this is too dangerous not to be an elder, and so on? Or would we have somebody come and give a series of messages who held this view? If a person, if I were pastoring a church again, because uh, I was in pastoral ministry for quite a few years, if I were pastoring a church again, and I had an articulate um, uh, elder in the church who was going down this path, uh, I would ask two questions before I asked him to resign, or before I forced his resignation, as the case might be. Uh, one would be, is he open to doing some more thinking and reading and, and being corrected in this whole area? And the second would be, as he's doing it, is he willing to hold his counsel for a bit? Or is he a proselytizer? If he's a proselytizer, I'd want him out right away. No hesitation. Um, but, but, but there are compromised positions along there too. I mean, I don't know how many of you, eight or ten of you have come up to me and said, what about Don Garlington? <laughs> And Don's, a, Don's an old friend again as well. I've talked to him a bit about these things. I wish I'd talked to him some more. I've read his books and his articles over the years. I'm persuaded that his analysis of Judaism is wrong. I'm persuaded that his analysis of, um, of uh, justification, which has been heavily influenced, not by Tom Wright so much, not by E.P. Sanders so much, although in part, but very strongly by Jimmy Dunn, who was his doctor father at Durham, um, is, is at best... Um, inconsistent, um, obscure. Uh, he, 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 I've heard him occasionally in conferences say one thing, he's challenged on it, he backs off and, and pedals another way for a little while. But I don't see a worked out maturity in his view quite. I, I don't know where he's going to end up. I, I hate to say that because this tape may well get back to him. He's a friend and he, he's a fine scholar, he can preach very well. He, he loves the Lord, and he, I'm sure he really thinks that he, what he's doing is right in this area. But I don't think he has understood that the dikayao language in Paul in the verbal structure is exclusively forensic. Uh, he wants it to have some element of make righteous in it while still including some forensic element. He's got the two of them worked together. And when I push it on various exegeses, I... I'm, not, I'm, I'm rarely convinced by what he says. In some exegesis, he's correct because he's dealing with the nouns and not the verb. And the nouns are more flexible in Paul. He's right. Uh, moreover, I do want to say that some of our problems in criticizing these chaps are because we're dealing with models that are a bit too far removed from the biblical text. In classic reform thought, there is justification, which is invariably forensic, and there is sanctification, which is either invariably or virtually invariably transformative. 
And if we are in the domain of systematic theology, I'm happy to use that language. But the best systematicians have always recognized that the Hagiadzo word group, for example, in Paul, sometimes, at least sometimes, refers to what is sometimes referred to as positional sanctification or, or definitional sanctification. That is, uh, you're declared to be holy, which is uh, as equally once for all as justification. I mean, if, if you're a Christian, you are positionally sanctified. You already belong to God, you're set apart for him, and so forth. And I'm persuaded that's what is meant, for example, in 1 Corinthians 1, where the Corinthians are already said to be sanctified. You think, this group sanctified? My word, it's difficult to imagine a less sanctified church in the whole New Testament. But, but the, the point is, if they're Christians, they're sanctified. By definition, they're, they're positionally set apart for God, you see? And in fact, uh, I've come to the conclusion over the years that virtually all of the Hagiadzo passages in Paul have to deal with historically what we call positional or definitional sanctification. Um, the, the book by uh, David Peterson in that regard, Possessed by God, is fairly convincing. I think he goes over the top here and there. But it does not follow, then, that there is no passage in Paul that deals with the transformative. There's lots of stuff in Paul that deals with the transformative outside the Hagiadzo word group, you see? So there you find Paul, after uh, 30 years in ministry, just about saying, um, Forgetting those things which are behind, I press on towards those things which are ahead. And so well, there are all kinds of, of passages that deal with growth and transformation and then the whole um, new birth uh, configuration and what the Holy Spirit does within us. There are all kinds of things that, apart from the Hagiadza word group, you see, that, uh, that really do deal with sanctification. So I want to say, as strongly as anybody, that we need to be justified by a once-for-all declarative act by God himself on the basis of the unique and substitutionary crosswork of Christ offered up before God on behalf of the elect. I'm happy to say that. But on the other hand, he doesn't merely declare us just and then do nothing further. Our salvation is bound up with regeneration, with the transforming work of the Spirit, with being, being made conformable to Christ, with growing in maturity, and, and the distinction between being babes in the Word and being mature. And, you see, if you label all of those things in the systematics domain, Sanctification, I'm with you. The trouble is we then take that systematics domain and track it back to New Testament language of sanctification and misread the New Testament. So that when you come across someone like Don Garlington and a few others who say, wait a minute, you're misunderstanding Galatians 3. It's, 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 it's salvation historical, it's not static. You're misunderstanding um, sanctification. We may blow our top too soon just because we have failed to recognize that they are operating in the domain of discourse of exegesis and we're operating in the domain of discourse of systematics. One of the things that troubles me about some reformed apologetic is that it is far, in fact, Lewis, and I were Lewis Johnson and I were talking about this earlier in, in the week, that there's so much that is merely casting back to the magisterial reformation or merely appealing to the categories of systematic theology and is not sufficiently exegetical. At the end of the day, it's the Bible that's our authority, not the Magisterial Reformation, though I too like Calvin, you see? Now, within that framework, therefore, we have to keep reforming ourselves, and sometimes there are things to learn even from people who oppose us. Which is another on the one hand, on the other hand. I told you, I'm a wimp. <laughs> he doesn't quit, does he? You, you provoked me to another question. Uh, uh, it's my fault, is it? Yes, your fault. Uh, you made a, a statement uh, I don't know which one of the men you were talking about, I think it was the last one, where you said, if you push him into a corner, yes, he will yes, come yes. up with the right yes, answer. Yes. But, but one of the problems that some of my brethren have is, yeah. 
when it comes to key doctrines like justification, yeah. And, yeah. and we're preachers, do we have to push and be pushed into a corner before we clearly say what we believe? No, no, but that's not the question you asked me the first time, though, John. Yeah, first... No, but that's just the third question. Yeah, okay, that's good. <laughs> Because the question you asked me at first was, it a, is it a heresy? You yeah, see? Okay, and and so my said, answer was, in part, you've got, you got to throw in some extra factors here. If the yeah. man's flatly denying something, it's yeah. a heresy. If, if the man has configured things, you know, mucked them up a little bit, and, but, but still comes up with the right answers when you push him in a corner, well, I might not want to use him in my pulpit. Mm -hmm. I might not want to endorse all that he says. But on the other hand, I'm not quite ready to say that the man's a heretic. Oh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm not talking about somebody being a yeah. heretic. I'm saying that... Uh, there are people who defend, and then you say, well, if, if, you, if you push him, and you yeah. say, but wait a minute, when we're talking about something like this, we shouldn't have to push yeah. to get to the real core oh, of I what a person believes. I agree, I agree. In other words, you ought to say first, now this is what ensue, this is true, don't question this, now let's talk about this over yeah. here, there may yeah. be another view over here. Well, that's why I, that's why yeah. I gave the story of, I mean, I, I don't tell these stories on my friends easily, but the story that I gave of Peter Bolt, who said, now what are you going to do with this old lady who's dying? I mean, that is the issue at the end of the day. It, mm -hmm. it sooner or later descends to the street. What are you actually telling people? Yeah. I agree with that. Well, you, you may have felt uncomfortable to prefer another format, but for me, and I think for most of us here, we are grateful that you covered what you did. You did it magnificently. Um, <clears throat> nice to see you, Gary. This is out of uh, really a pastoral context of how we apply these things. And in a discussion that I had last night with a friend here, uh, the question came up, as people perceive our preaching, do they perceive this as more emphasizing God's grace? And we are passive. We really have little to do. Or someone else uh, may preach in such a way that their preaching is perceived to be more law-oriented because of those encouragements to do the various things or to be or to conform or to follow after Christ in various ways. And as we wrestle with the balance of those things, of clearly declaring justification by faith in Christ alone, through grace alone, uh, and we take that and endeavor to work that out with the implications of how do you live, how do you move from that, part of the struggle uh, has been for me, how do you balance those two things in such a way that, that you are not uh, um, uh, denying either of those two central truths? And kind of a part B to that, is there, some, uh, is there some particular clue that you can give us as we're reading other people you know, and trying to learn from what they say, when do they go beyond that and there is some incipient denial of justification, but it's not clear and we're not sure if we want to tell people to read these things and to follow after them because we're not sure where they're going. And a particular thing is in my mind in regard to Future Grace by John Piper, who you know, has, doesn't seem to me to deny the forensic nature of justification, and yet at points he wants to almost draw justification out you know, as being the way we live. Uh, for those who, you know, of us who don't have the, you know, the, the time to invest in all of the, the foundational studies, and we're dealing with that with people in our pew, what advice and counsel can you give to us in that? In 25 words or less. <laughs> oh, I see. You're all heart. 
Um, it, it is a very important question. In part, it is a question that is not resolvable by a simple formula. It's, it's resolvable, it seems to me, only in a comprehensive grasp of biblical theology so that you yourself are self-correcting by scripture and by the kind of pastoral experience that reads situations and scenes pretty well. If, if by temperament you're sort of an A personality and a bit doer on top, uh, then you will probably be inclined to drift toward more thundering of law. If you're a more happy, buoyant sort of personality, then probably you're going to be biased on the opposite end. But at the end of the day, if you're a faithful minister of the word, you want to get the balance of scripture right as it is in scripture, and you want to apply it right to the congregation that you yourself serve. So that if you serve a congregation, if you've just gone to a new congregation, let's say, and this is a church that's had enormous rules, constantly thundered upon it, and it's introverted and small and uh, legalistic. Wow, I would, uh, in my framing of law and sin and thunder, it would all be bound up with the matchless sovereign glory of God instead of mere rules. And then grace appears correspondingly matchless and wonderful. And, and so, so you move to freedom in that kind of larger framework. Uh, if, on the other hand, you've got a, you're, you move, you're called to a congregation that's been skirting with antinomianism for years, the gospel is all about making me happy, uh, then, then I, I, I would want to start talking about the glory of God and inject some of the fear of God and, uh, and um, the terror of the Lord. Uh, he, who, who, to whom does the Lord look? He is of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. And, and you want to inject all of that, but again, precisely so that the glories of the gospel come out. There is a sense in which if those things are handled properly, each side reinforces the other. And I don't think that it's very easy to get a very clear and expansive view of grace unless you have a pretty terrifying view of holiness and vice versa. I don't think you can. Holiness becomes uh, dark and, um, and uh, malignant without an understanding that God's love is a factor in his holiness. The, 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 the otherness of God embraces all of his uh, virtues and attributes. And that includes his love. And so that needs also to be explained and applied in all kinds of, of, of ways. When you come to someone like John Piper, who's another friend, and I've spoken at his Bethlehem conference and so on, he's a good preacher. He's a good man on so many fronts. What you must understand about John is that like many good preachers, he, um, he says things over the top. And you, you get things right in John by listening to all the things he says over the top, rather than just the latest one. And uh, when, when, once you've made that allowance, you can, you can cover for almost anything in John. Um, on his future grace, you see, part of our problem again is that we hear, we hear the term justification. He uses the term justification, future justification. You hear the term justification, and for us, it is so strongly tied to one particular thing. But yet there is a sense, and I don't, I don't want the term justification. I, I, I'll tell you another term in a moment. There is a sense in which, on the other hand, those who have been truly justified, and in whom God is currently working, will in fact increasingly, whatever ups and downs and backslidings there may be, will increasingly be conformed to the likeness of God's dear son, and they will persevere to the end. And God himself then calls them more than conquerors. That's what conquerors 
has to do with in, in, um, in, in, both in, um, in Romans 8 and Hanikon repeatedly in um, uh, the book of Revelation. Hanikon is not the one who's got the higher Christian life. Hanikon is the one who survives despite being shot at and bullwhipped and things like that, you see? And, 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 and so the one who perseveres to the end is, is more than a conqueror. In that sense, he's a validated, justified. Well, not justified in that sense back there, but vindicated. I like vindicated myself. But vindicated not because he's such a hot shot, but, but vindicated because by the grace of God, in fact, there is a transformation in his life, which hears at the end the master actually saying, well done, good and faithful servant. Are we ashamed of that? No, of course, of course, you push me, we're good and faithful only because God works in us to, 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 to will and to do all of his good pleasure. Of course, that's also true. But there is a sense in which there is a kind of final vindication, isn't there? Now, clearly, if you start working that in the wrong way, you can have some strange notions of justification. But in all fairness, I think John skirts most of those pretty well. He doesn't always say things the way I would, but then I don't say things the way he, do, he would either. You know? So one wants to be careful about coming down too hard. Is that fair? I, I don't like the whole, um, the whole Christian hedonism language. And I've talked to him about that. I don't like it. I think that it's misleading. It's mischievous. But yet he's still making an important point somewhere along the line. Because there are an awful lot of doer Christians around who've never heard of Nehemiah about the joy of the Lord being your strength. You know, in that kind of framework, a good dose of John Piper can be a big help. If you listen to him long enough. spoke at Westminster Seminary a few years back. And uh, it uh, got around to ECT eventually, and uh, he said something along the lines that uh, I don't mind working with evangelicals as long as they understand that we take the lead because we have the ministerium, the magisterium. Yes. Um, I'm wondering, does uh, Colson and Packer understand that this isn't a 50-50 deal as far as he's concerned, at least it didn't appear that way, and can you give us any insight into Newhouse and recent discussions on the ECT stuff? Another one in 25 words or less. <laughs> Did you all hear the question? No. Oh, good. Come back and repeat it. <laughs> the, the, que the question was apparently he heard Richard John Newhouse at Westminster Seminary a few years ago saying that he doesn't mind working with evangelicals so long as he understands that Catholicism takes the lead, the magisterium takes the lead in all of this matter. So do I think then that uh, Colson and uh, Packer understand this uh, vision of reality from Newhouse? Um, and could I therefore shed any light on ECT? Uh, do they understand that? Uh, Packer certainly understands it, uh, but he also thinks that he's taking the lead. Now, whether you agree with him or not, that's what he thinks. Um, uh, Colson, I mean, I, how am I supposed to ask what another, what another man thinks inside? I, I don't really know. I've, I've worked with him pretty closely. I, 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 think he's being, I think he's being manipulated a bit. I don't think he knows quite enough to, 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 to see some of these, these structures. Uh, a, a year or so ago, Newhouse published an article in which his prediction of what's going to take place in the next century 
is that, in fact, the Catholic Church is going to be reinforced and absorbed in orthodoxy and absorbed in evangelicalism and so on. That's what he thinks is going to happen, Mother Church and so on. He's a typical convert. The converts to cross-denominational change are often the, the, the most um, inflexible and, um, and um, triumphalistic of the lot. And in talking with some of these people myself, the people who were most abusive to me were, in fact, Newhouse and Robert Wilkin, both Lutheran converts to Catholicism. Um, I don't know how much more I should say about that. It is a long and complex matter. Um, uh, there, there are some people who have acquitted themselves with fair dignity and, uh, and integrity on this matter, and some who have not. And uh, some are naive. Uh, some are pretty sophisticated. I, I don't know how much more I should say about this. Unless this is a burning issue for all kinds of people, then I'll wrap it on a bit longer. But I... Uh, I'm just starting, or have been working through some of the issues of New Covenant as opposed to Covenant Theology Dispensational. Yeah. I'm trying to get a handle on it. Some of you had said, uh, raised a question in my mind. You talked about the connection of the law of Christ and the Torah yeah. and some of the things that are connected there. Because yeah. some of the reading I'm hearing is saying Torah is completely out. There is no longer law. Yeah. We don't hear anything. And yet I read Paul in Ephesians 6 that seems to be quoting Torah as a way to instruct uh, children to obey their parents in the, in the Lord. Can you give uh, some insight there on what you see the connection between Christ's law and Torah and what should be preached? Oh, that's a good question, and it is a very complex one. And uh, I've got about three minutes, and then we have to go uh, to, to break for lunch. But let, let, let me say one or two things. The traditional uh, interpretation in much of Protestantism, though not all of Protestantism, um, but not least in Reformed circles on these matters, has been that the law comprises three elements, moral, civil, and ceremonial law. Uh, many reform types assign that view to Calvin. In fact, it goes beyond Calvin to Aquinas. I have not been able to track it farther, but it's a Thomist view. Uh, you can find elements of it before that, but as a whole explanation for the relationship between the Testaments, I can't myself find it earlier than the Summa. And Calvin gets it from, from, from Aquinas. And just about everyone who's looked at the subject now says the same thing. I didn't know that at the time. I had to find out the hard way. The difficulty with that view, however, is that in New Testament passages that deal with questions of continuity and discontinuity, an unambiguous analysis in terms of that, tripart that tripartite division is not to be found. That's the problem. And... Um, there are differences, for example, in Matthew 23, 23, between the lighter and the weightier matters of the law. Well, fine. That's saying that some bits are more important, some bits are less important. Everybody agrees with that. But that's not quite the same thing as a whole, the whole tripartite analysis. In this tripartite analysis that is Thomistic and that has come to us through Calvin, not through Luther. Luther's view is different. Um, uh, then the moral law continues... While the ceremonial law disappears since it's fulfilled in Christ, and the civil law disappears because the locus of the people of God is no longer nation, but a transnational, extranational group, the church. Now, I have some profound problems with that view on, on exegetical grounds, all, all kinds of grounds. I don't think it works, for example, in Matthew 5, 27 to 20. Uh, John Stott's little book, Christian Counterculture, is marvelous in all kinds of ways. It is a wonderful book on all kinds of fronts. But when he tells me that, the, the, that what is really being talked about there, that Christ does not abolish but fulfills, 
is the moral law as opposed to the law, it's not what the text says. I mean, not one jot or tittle, which sounds reasonably comprehensive. Um, and I, it, just, it just doesn't sound like one jot or tittle of the moral law. Moreover, I'm a little bit nervous about this vision of moral law that is not very well defined, that stands almost above Torah. I think there are huge philosophical ethical questions that have to be raised about that. Now, on the other hand, I'm nervous about the kind of view that says, here you've got the law covenant, and here you've got the new covenant, and never the twain shall meet. I'm not in that one, I'm in this one. That one can take a running jump. Now, that is only a whisker from Marcion. So you want to be careful of that, too. At the end of the day, I, I will summarize my view in about two minutes, but, but, but it's, it's one of those issues that I don't like to talk about unless I have about two hours, because I know that I will generate some false impressions that I cannot correct in two minutes. Um, as far as I'm concerned, there is a sense in which Christians are not, in any sense, under Torah. Where Torah is understood to be the law covenant. That is not the covenant under which we find ourselves. But it does not follow that therefore I see no connections whatsoever with that covenant. The connections work at all kinds of levels. But it seems to me that the dominant connection is in terms of promise, prediction, prophecy, typology, and the various kinds of fulfillment. So that the significance and binding force of Torah is precisely in that to which it points. I would go further and say that this is bound up with another huge structure in Paul that is still largely overlooked. If the Lord gives me enough birthdays, I want to write a book on it someday. At the risk of caricature, O-line dispensationalists keep stressing uh, discontinuity um, and uh, traditional covenant theologians uh, keep stressing uh, continuity. So the dispensationalists of an older variety, less so the contemporary ones, wrote many books on Musterion, where Harry Ironside wrote one. Most of them wrote one at some point or another, where Musterion was bound up with that which is hidden in the past and is now revealed. And then what it was that was hidden in the past and is now revealed depended on, on, on the particular passage, but the 27 or 28 instances of Musterion were bound up with this. And, and largely that, that, that which has been hidden in the past and is now revealed then becomes the church or some aspect of the gospel or the unity of the people of God. And it's all hidden in the past and now revealed. The difficulty is that virtually all of those doctrines can also be found somewhere in Paul in terms of that which has been prophesied and is now fulfilled. So on the one hand, you have the reform type saying, look, it's been prophesied in the past and now fulfilled continuity. And the old line dispensationalist said, look, it's been hidden in the past and is now revealed. Discontinuity. Somewhere along the line, we need uh, to say, a plague on both your houses. Uh, let's put these things together. How do they work? And I, I do think they can be worked out. I, I think that there's some ways in which they work out in terms of a kind of hiddenness that is nevertheless predictive and now is revealed, disclosed, manifested in the fullness of time. But that's another conference.
easier than uh, the Biden's books, sight unseen, and we know it will be helpful. And at the very least, it will be helpful. Uh, his commentary on John is easily among the best. His commentary on Matthew, I think, definitely is the best. Amen. Um, last I saw, we had one volume of the Matthew commentary left. I first was acquainted with his commentary on Matthew when I was doing my thesis on Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Found it very helpful, most helpful, I think, probably single resource that I found. Probably still is the most helpful resource to be found in that passage, except, of course, for my thesis. <laughs> we are very grateful to have had him with us. We look forward to the next time. Let's stand and be dismissed in prayer.